Hello, and welcome to NapTown. I'm your host, Susan Neville, and our guest for this initial series of interviews is writer Dan Wakefield. Mr. Wakefield is the author of nine nonfiction books, two memoirs, and five novels, including the best-selling Going All the Way. Bill Moyers called Dan's memoir, Returning, A Spiritual Journey, one of the most important memoirs of the spirit I have ever read. Of his book, Island in the City, The World of Spanish Harlem, James Baldwin wrote, Dan Wakefield has a remarkable combination of humility and tough-mindedness that makes these streets and these struggling people come alive. Over the next few episodes, we'll be talking to Mr. Wakefield about his life, including his deep friendships with writers such as Baldwin, Anne Sexton, Joan Didion, and Kurt Vonnegut, and his interviews as a staff writer for The Nation, The Atlantic Monthly, The New York Times, and other newspapers and magazines, with such luminaries as Bobby Kennedy, C. Wright Mills, Dorothy Day, Adam Clayton Powell, Joan Baez, and Golden Meir, some of whom became good friends. Again, I'm your host, Susan Neville, and welcome Mr. Wakefield back to NapTown. So we're back, and we're going to be talking about your work as a journalist for The Nation and um, The Atlantic. Well. And other places. Yeah. Well, after I covered the teledrive for The Nation, and I came back, and my Columbia friend Sam Astrakhan took me to the Bowery to meet Dorothy Day and her associate. Ammon Hennessy, who was a great character, who he wrote a book called Autobiography of a Catholic Anarchist. And anyway, and so then I wrote my next article called Miracle in the Bowery about Dorothy Day and what she called her the Catholic Worker Hospitality House. And she of course, was well-known at that time. She had been a bohemian, as it was called, in her youth in the 1920s. And after I, and I did research on her, and after I wrote the article, which was very laudatory about her work and the hospitality house, in fact, the article was called Miracle in the Bowery, but after the article came out, she wouldn't speak to me. Mm-hmm. And I was really upset, and I asked friends there what I had done wrong. And they said, well, it was that quote from the past. And I had read a wonderful book by Malcolm Cowley, who was then an editor. He'd been a writer in the 20s, and he wrote a really good book called Exiles Return about Fitzgerald and Hemingway and all the guys who'd gone to Paris in the 20s and then come back in the 30s. And in that, he happened to say in passing that Dorothy Day was the only one who could drink Eugene O'Neill under the table at the Hell's Something Bar. So I thought that was a great achievement. I put that in, but Dorothy did not like that. And it took me a long time to understand that she was trying to not be part of the glamorization of booze that was part of the 1950s. So after that article was when I proposed to George Kirstein, the publisher of The Nation, that I go to Israel and do a series of articles. And I guess I've talked about that. Mm-hmm. But when I got back, in Israel I had met I.F. Stone, the independent journalist, and he had offered me a job working for I.F. Stone's Weekly in Washington, D.C. And I went down there, and I could see it was not for me. It was much more research oriented than writing and observing. So I came back 
and I told them I'd had this offer from so-and-so. They made me an offer that I would write two articles a month, and I would get $75 a week. So that was a good deal. Right. Me. And I did that, and I covered, of course, a lot of civil rights stuff, but also whatever was going on in New York that looked like it might be an article, you know, I would cover things like the conference, the convention of the National Association of Manufacturers, <laughs> and there was always stuff to satirize and those things. But some were really interesting. My favorite, well, I love trials. I love covering trials. I mean, it was a great drama, of course, and the best one probably was there was a trial of James Jones, the author, the men he had served with in... James Jones, the author of From Here to Eternity. I was about to say, the men he served with in Schofield Barracks, which he wrote about in From Here to Eternity, had sued him because he had hardly changed their names. In other words, I think... Robert E. Lee Stewart was changed to Robert E. Lee Pruitt, and he was the bugler who was exactly right. So it was like seeing the book come alive. You know, whoever was TNT, somebody was dynamite, somebody, and it was a strange thing, like watching a novel, the characters step into real life. In the courtroom. In the courtroom. And the main guy who brought the suit was Anthony Maggio, which was the name of the character Anthony Maggio. So at one of the intermissions, I went up to Jones, and, you know, he's a great writer, and I didn't want to insult him or anything, but I said, Mr. Jones, I just have to ask, why didn't you change their names? Right. He said, I knew those bastards would never read the book, but they saw the movie. Oh, that's so funny. So, that's how it happened. And they lost the trial. I mean, the soldiers, the guys, which I thought there was no way they could lose, except they had a Brooklyn lawyer going up against Random House Ace lawyer. And also, the flaw in their case was that Baggio, previous to that, had sold an article had let somebody write about himself in one of these Playboy knockoffs, like Nugget or mm-hmm. something. And he was claiming to be Anthony Maggio of the book. Oh, how funny. So, as the Random House lawyer said, you can't, on the one hand, try to profit from being that, and then on the other hand, say you were liable. So, anyway, they... And I remember... The article was picked up by a couple of magazines abroad. I remember there was one in Germany. It's the only time it was ever translated Mm. into German. And I remember the lawyer was from one of the big firms at that time in New York, something like Weill, Gottschall, something. And I remember sending him a copy of of the German translation and I think it was in a London magazine. But at any rate, that was really great to watch and just to watch. And I loved watching really good lawyers, what they did. Was James Jones there throughout the trial oh, yeah. every day? Yeah, he was there every day. Would and he have had to pay or would it have been Random House? If he had lost, who would have? Well, it would have been Random House because right. he wouldn't have had the kind of money that they right. Had. And there were a lot of these guys. I mean, there were like seven or eight, as I recall. Anyway, but the next great trial I saw was when I wrote my first article for Esquire, which was a profile of Congressman Adam Clayton Powell, Jr. It was called The Angry Voice of Harlem. And Powell, you know, that if I'd understood things, in any way in those days, I would have not then been surprised about the O.J. trial and the 
response of the black community and loving that O.J. went free. And Powell was constantly bashed in the New York papers, the white New York papers, and made him even more beloved by people at home. And he lived very high and sort of flaunted his wealth and he had a boat in a house in Bermuda or something and he just enjoyed being Adam Clayton Powell. And anyway, he was brought to trial for some kind of tax problem that he hadn't paid the right amount of taxes or took wrong deducts, whatever it was. And his lawyer was one of the great lawyers of that era, Edward Bennett Williams, who was in Washington. And Murray Kempton, the New York Post, my mentor, was also covering the trial. And so it ended up that I would have lunch with Kempton and Adam Powell and, and Edward Bennett Williams. And that was fascinating in itself and discussing what had happened that morning in the trial. And I remember one of the high points of the trial was when Powell's lawyer got the IRS expert on the stand. And he very meticulously went through what the expert did and what he knew. And he led up to point where he read a part of the IRS manual to the expert. It was something extremely complex and hard to understand. And after he read it, William said to the expert, do you understand it? And the expert said, no. Oh, and at that moment, oh, that was what you know, they had one of those clocks that the minute hand would go click and go to the next thing. Mm -hmm. As he said that, then William said, I move, we have a recess now, Your Honor. And the thing went click. click. And then that was, it was really dramatic. So we go to have this lunch and Powell is overjoyed, you know, and he said, oh, Ed, uh, what a great job you did. You destroyed that. IRS witness, and William said, well, don't get so excited. He says, there was one woman on that jury that was weeping for that guy. And oh. like he had seen, which I didn't see, he knew what everybody's reaction was on the jury. And it was great to see these guys work. And also, there were some judges you wanted to cover. There were some really nutty judges, you know, who would just I remember one who really got upset at any liberal cause. And one of the issues was Norman Mailer and Dorothy Day and Mike Harrington of the Young People's Socialist League led a protest against the Civil Defense Department because the Civil Defense was having people have an air raid drill where people you were supposed to go down in the subway to protect yourself against the atomic bomb. And Mailer and Dorothy Day and others were saying, this is nonsense. This wouldn't protect anybody right. from the atomic bomb. So they were picketing at one of these. There was actually a practicing where people were supposed to run down in the subway when these sirens went up. So they were picketing and they were arrested. And I remember some of them spent the night in jail. And so they then were brought before this judge who hated anything like this. And he would just get ready. How can you people do these insane things against the law of the land and all that stuff? So it was always fun to cover him. Later, this friend of mine and Ted Art Bernstein, known as the rug, because he didn't have any hair, and he's always talking about buying a rug, but he never did. And he was in Washington Square Park throwing frisbees. And somehow, it was a part of the park where you weren't supposed to be playing around. Anyway, 
he was arrested and he had to go before this nutty judge. And it was, that was, you know, the judge was saying, oh, what is it this man was saying? He was throwing a Frisbee. Right? Oh, what? You're a Frisbee? What are you? Anyway, the judges were sometimes worth entertainment and coverage. But I'm still thinking for some weird reason about the people going down in the subway hmm. as a drill. So everyone in New York actually had to do that that day. Not everyone, but whoever was out walking around it had was to like go a down. Drill. Do you remember being out and walking around? Did I remember watching the people protest and get arrested. And get arrested. And because of that, I then suggested an article for Esquire where I interviewed the general who was the head of civil defense in New York. And he showed me all these maps and complicated explanations of radiation and so on. And this is like if the bomb had hit in Westchester. I said, well, but sir, what, what if the bomb hit right in Manhattan, you know, like mm-hmm. Times Square? He said, oh, you mean ground zero? I said, yeah, what, what would that, what would that affect me? He said, well, would be Goodbye, New York. So, so oh the article God. was called Goodbye, New York. Wow. When was John Hersey's, this is an aside, but John yeah. Hersey's Hiroshima? In the New Yorker. Right. I'm not sure yeah, when I it can't was. remember either. Uh, I think it was not that long after Hiroshima. Right. It must have been. But back to how, you know, doing this, that was my first article for Esquire. Boy, I really wanted to do a good job. And I spent a lot of time with Powell. I went to some of his meetings at the, he was the minister of the Abyssinian Baptist Church. I remember he said to me once, he said, now, a lot of preaching is how you modulate your voice. He said, for instance, there's a phrase that's very effective you have to say, you know, without this, the people perish. You lower your voice. And uh, he was a great speaker. And so that's what made him a great preacher. But I would say he was a great minister. Where there is no vision, the people perish. Is that it? I thought of that in the Hillary campaign. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was trying to think, okay, what is this? Where there is no vision the people perish. Uh, in fact, I remember at a meeting, a neighborhood meeting in Powell's church that I went to, there was a group of neighborhood activists, and Powell was really pretty dismissive of them, except for this one guy. Powell was very polite and wanted to hear whatever this man had to say. He was a tall black man. I remember he had boots that came up to his knees. And all I remember the time was Powell called him Malcolm. Oh my gosh. And that was indeed Malcolm X. That was Malcolm X. The trial of Adam Powell, I mean, he was the first black senator from New York or congressman. So he was the congressman representing Arnold. And so was the feeling, I mean, as you were watching the trial, was that this was a setup? Well, they were after They were him, after there him. There was no doubt about that. And he flaunted, among other things, I remember he was having an affair with the daughter of a woman who was the publisher of the New York Post. I think she was at Sarah Lawrence mm-hmm. at the time. And, uh, he would go places with it. He would bring her with him to some public address that he had to do. And she was very beautiful. And so that was part of his image. But I remember once we were to have dinner. And he originally said, well, I'll take us to dinner. And he named some really fancy restaurant in Midtown. And then the last minute he said, no, no, we should we should go. And then we, he took me to a restaurant in Harlem so that he could look appropriate as, you know. Since you were doing a feature story. Yeah, yeah. and so 
but he was very condescending to the people at the restaurant in Harlem. And I remember, and of course, they were bowing and scraping the maitre d', the waiters, everybody. And Powell had ordered liver and onions. So at one point, remember, maitre d' came over and says, Carson Powell, how is the liver side? Powell didn't even look up. He says, it's the liver. It's the liver. <laughs> so, was he a good congressman? He was good for that district. And that was his mission, and he performed it. And they loved all his flaunting of the rules and having wealth and mm -hmm. all that stuff. He was them. Was it when you, I mean, kind of know your political biases, and at the beginning you talked about liking to go to conventions because you like to write satire and you're really good yeah. at satire. Was it harder to do serious political feature stories? No, with I loved it. I got into it. And my very next piece I did for Ascar was a profile of William F. Buckley wow. Jr. Yeah. And that was really fun, too. I remember when I called him up, I said, Mr. Buckley, uh, it's Dan Wakefield, and I've been assigned to write a profile of you for Esquire, so when could we meet? Just assuming it was going to happen. Right. And Buckley says, uh, is it to be a profile or an assassination? Oh. <laughs> and he knew that I wrote for the nation. Right. And I said, well, Murray Kempton would vouch for me, for, you know, and he said, ah, bringing out the big guns. <laughs> So the whole thing was, it was really a lot of fun. And I remember having lunch with him at the Yacht Club. <laughs> and the great embarrassment of my era then was I wore white pants to that lunch. Why did I, I guess because it was This the wasn't Yacht like Club. something you ordinarily did. That no. It's not no. a Truman Capote kind yeah, of thing. No, no. no, And I was trying to be. Yachty. Yachty. And I was about the unyachtiest guy <laughs> in New York. But the great thing about writing that piece, at this time, Buckley was still thought of as a young right-wing kind of nut. I mean, people... Right. And he'd written the book God and Man at Yale. He just started the National Review. And... You wouldn't have believed that he would later become part of the establishment, mm -hmm. which he was. So I can understand why he would be leery of me, of the nation, writing about it. But I really did try to do it as balanced. I didn't want to be... I mean, there was some fun to be had because he would say things for that purpose, you know, to be fun. But it was basically a serious article. And I got a long letter from him when it came out. And he said, well, you know, all the things I misunderstood, this nuance or that, or I hadn't quite understand the role of that conservative, whatever. And then it ended up and he said, but I appreciate your fair-mindedness. Oh, that's and great. So that was a great thing. Did you find yourself, was he charismatic at, at oh, yeah. I mean, did you find yourself being convinced by things he had to say and then have to I, kind of I, rethink I, them or think, no, yeah, I, you've got I, a point no, there? I, I, I didn't convince him any political things, but I enjoyed him. You know, I think we were friends ever since. Whenever I needed a quote from the right, I could call him up mm -hmm. or I could go see him. In fact, in the very last book I wrote, The Hijacking of Jesus, I went to his townhouse and interviewed him. And I remember when I did the piece on him, I met his sister Priscilla, who was managing editor of National Review. And I quite liked her, and I liked him. I met his wife. She was a big socialite and not terribly charismatic, I thought. But anyway, but he was. And, of course, he and Kempton were, they were best friends. Mm -hmm. And, in fact, Noel Parmentel once said, yeah, Kempton Buckley, 
you know, was always clearing his throat to make a river. I said, those two should get a hotel room. (laughs) But I remember when Buckley's wife died, I wrote him a note of condolence. And I never had this happen. He wrote me back a thank you for my note. For your note. So he was extremely courteous. Also, I was there later when I wrote the book Expect a Miracle. I had, as part of that, I went to Lourdes. And in fact, the publisher didn't pay for that, but it was when I was in New York in, I guess, 92 to 95, and I met a woman at a GQ party, a woman who was the editor of Mademoiselle. And I said, I wanted to go to Lourdes. And she said, well, would you do an article for us? So they, Mademoiselle, Mademoiselle paid for paid. my trip to Lourdes. And I wrote it. And then I sent the book to Buckley. And he had me on his show, on hmm. Firing Line. And that was a big deal. I can't remember what he said in your book, Hijacking of Jesus. I mean, because which was about the hijacking of Christianity by the religious right. And did do you remember his? I don't remember what he said. Anything groundbreaking or whatever. But I remember when I was writing stuff for the Atlantic, I would call him, and sometimes just to know who was the right person to call. So yeah, he was very oh and he he came to the book party for going all the way. There was a sort of little publishers party in New York. There was a big party in Boston, then there was a publishing small party in New York. But friends of mine had a party in New York at this really grungy place in the village called the Cafe Wa W A J. And Buckley came to that. And my agent at the time was Knox Berger, who was then the guy who, you know, first published Vonnegut. And Knox's wife, Kitty Sprague, who was a very bright, nice woman, she was at the party. And she told me later when she walked out, and she was very, always very well-dressed, attractive woman, and she walked out around the same time Buckley was walking out of the cafe. And Buckley offered her a ride uptown. She said, oh, that's all right. I'm just going, you know, we live on the Washington State. Well, you mean you live down here? (laughs) (laughs) He was quite uh, stunned. But him coming to that party was fun. That's great. And so Harold Hayes was the editor of Esquire, and he's the guy, he was one of the great editors, and he he really transformed Esquire. He's the guy who backed and encouraged Gay to lease and, you know, gave him the money and the backing to have time to do those pieces on DiMaggio and Frank Sinatra. Did you ever publish any fiction in Esquire? No. Yeah. I never really think of you as a short fiction writer. I only either. wrote three. Only wrote three. And actually, I wrote them before I'd written a novel, and they were sort of to prove to myself that I could write fiction. Right. I'll never forget. The first one was taken by Playboy, and it was called The Rich Girl. And it was, I could have been in the position of James Jones. I mean, it was based on a woman I had gone out with who was from a wealthy Texas oil family, and she'd gone to Sarah Lawrence. And anyway, the thing I basically changed, the story is about meeting her and then meeting her mother who didn't approve of me, and me buying a ridiculous Italian suit for the occasion, which was made things even more ridiculous. <laughs> and so I'm first delighted it's going to be published in Playboy, and they pay 1500 Right. 
So then I thought, God, what if she reads this thing? And then I thought, well, she'll never read Playboy. But also, the, the one thing I changed, I made her sort of not as smart as she really was to emphasize the text because I thought, I can't change Texas. I mean, if I try to say right. from Oklahoma, that doesn't work. So I just thought, well, I'm lucky it's in Playboy. So Playboy is published. A week later, I get a letter from this woman. Oh, no. Who I'm living in Boston. Turns out she's living about six blocks away. It starts out, dear dad, my husband subscribes to Playboy. Oh, no. <laughs> so I was reading your story, or should I say our story? (laughs) But it goes on to say she liked the story. And I couldn't, I really couldn't, because I had made, she was a very bright woman. I, for comic effect, made her like not fight in the cliches of. A Texas woman. It's so hard. I mean, it's amazing. It seems like it's more embarrassing sometimes to publish fiction than nonfiction. Yes. Oh, yeah. It's closer to the bone. And then, you know, you take those real things and you change them in ways that usually make you look worse. Yeah. And make any, you know, character that it's sort of based on look worse. It's like you're a caricaturist. And However. This is what's really interesting. I couldn't understand why she liked it. So I showed this story to a woman of the time who was a good friend. And I said, I told her, how could she like this? So the woman I gave the story to called me up and said, well, you idiot. She liked it because you said she was beautiful. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing else mattered. That's so funny. So but I, I wrote that, and then the other story I wrote in that same period was called Autumn Full of Apples, and it was a very nostalgic piece about Indianapolis and about really about Kippy Woolen, my first girlfriend in high school about going to her house on Dean Road, which was at that in those days really remote in the woods and very grand and it's still beautiful. Yeah. I mean there's still so many of the trees that But but now yeah. there's all kind of other houses. Yeah, there's like yeah. yeah. But anyway, it was a very nostalgic it was published by Red Book and then it was in the Martha Foley Best American Stories of 1966. So that was just fabulous. And later, somebody, I think it was the Heron or whatever university, they made, their students made a thing out of that story. It was called Autofield. They took pieces of board from an apple crate and made that the thing you put the volume in. Oh, that's great. It's a really beautiful volume with drawing of apples and stuff. So that was that. And the third story was something kind of silly and satiric called A Visit from Granny. And I sent it to my friend John Williams, who I knew from Redloaf Writers Conference, he posthumously has gained fame for his novel Stoner. And he was the editor of the Denver Quarterly, and he published that. Wow. So you had good luck with the three stories. Oh, that was it. And then yeah. I said, okay, that's enough. I, I now proved to myself yeah. I can now go yeah. ahead and write a novel. And then, of course, you kept writing journalism yeah, all along. I, and I guess the journalism was tapped or topped or something with the Atlantic commissioning me to write a whole issue of the magazine about the effect of Vietnam on this country. And the way that came about... That's the, the piece that super, was Supernation super at, at Peace and, and War. And... It came about because 
another great editor, Bob Manning, who I think he had taken over the Atlantic just a year before I was a Neiman Fellow in 63, 64. And he had been a Neiman Fellow. So I met him and then he asked me to write. I remember writing some essays. I wrote a long piece about Kerouac and the Beast. And anyway, so I was at his house. He invited me over. This was a time when he was living in Cambridge and he was having a cookout. And we were standing outside uh, drinking martinis. And he was saying it's really hard or impossible for a monthly magazine to cover the Vietnam War because it's changing all the time. And he said, maybe the way for us to do it is to talk about the effect on this country. And he said, maybe the way to do it is to send somebody around and go around the country with that in mind. How is the war affecting this country? He said, yeah, and then we had another martini. He said, well, why don't, why don't you, you do, do it? So that was great. And I think I started in May and I went to places, tried to go to places where I knew people or had some connection. I came to Indianapolis, of course. I went to Short Ridge, talked to students and Miss Jean Grubb, who was still the Echo faculty advisor. And I said to her, I'd really like to talk to some students, who could I talk to? And she said, well, there's a great kid who's president of the student council named Pat Nolan. So I met him, wow. and we had a good talk, and he said, you know, said, my dad's a lawyer, but he's a writer, too. He's written a book, and you should really meet him. He's a great guy. And in 1968, well, I was writing it in 67, this was in the time of youth rebellion and for a high school kid to say his dad was a great guy was pretty unusual. So I said, well, I'd like so to meet him. So that's how you guy. met him? That's how I met Alan Nolan and wow. we became friends. And the great historian yes. of the Civil War primarily. Yes. He wrote his first book was about the Iron Brigade, mm -hmm. the, the Hoosiers who went to the Civil War. Then he wrote a book I loved called Lee Considered. And he said it was not reconsidered because nobody had really considered him critically about Lee and his role as a general and so on. And that book was a selection of the Civil War Book Club and the Civil War Book Club in Atlanta advised the other book club members to burn the book. Oh, my God. And it wow. was very That's interesting. disrespectful, et cetera. So do you remember, you know, what he, what his son said about Vietnam, that part of your journey? I don't. So I, I mean, I shouldn't. I look back. I would assume Alan was not a big supporter of the war, but I can't say that because I don't remember. But the other part, well, one of the, what became sort of infamous was I went to Detroit and I asked to spend an evening in a police car, just making the rounds. Mm -hmm. And of course the police were very, hated all the hippies. And remember we, as we were making our rounds, we drove up to some corner there's a bunch of guys with long hair and no doubt somebody's playing guitar. And one of the cops said to the other, said, look at those, those motherfuckers ought to be in Vietnam. Mm. And so I wrote that. So later, I end up finishing the writing in Boston in the Atlantic office. And the managing editor of the Atlantic is a woman named Emily... I will think of the rest of her name, but she was one of these grand uh, Bostonian grand dame and a wonderful woman, Emily Flint, gray hair with 
fun and the glasses on a chain mm-hmm. around her neck. And she would come in with various questions about the editing and sentences and so on. And one day she came and said, Now, Dan, is it motherfucker two words <laughs> or is it hyphenated? And I remember then after that, a Manning called me into his office. He was red in the face. He was, you know, wiping his brow furiously with his hand. He said, you know, I, I really hate any kind of censorship. I would never change anything. But Dan, we go to high school. He said, is it all right if for the magazine we change motherfuckers to bastards? And then in the book, you will put it back to oh. motherfuckers. <laughs> yeah, Bob, that will be okay. Yeah, that's so funny. So where else did you go? You well, went to Indianapolis, Detroit. I went to San Francisco. I saw a love-in led you by did? Allen Ginsberg. Seriously? Yeah. Um, I went What to, was it like? It was very peaceful. Was it very peaceful? Yeah. Like, like Woodstock? No, it was. Um, there wasn't music. There was just... Mm-hmm. Oh, it was like that. when Ginsberg put the daisy in. Was it Ginsberg who put the... No, no. He tried to get people to levitate the Pentagon right. by going. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Well, this was just, it was in one of the big parks in San Francisco and people sitting in meditation and mmming. And I went to Haight-Ashbury and saw that scene. And I went to L.A. I went to Hollywood and stayed with the Duns. And I remember one of the nice things about this assignment it gave me an excuse to meet anybody I wanted. I was like, well, Which is a great thing about yeah. being a journalist. Yeah, well, especially with a, an assignment that broad, because everybody had an opinion. Right. So it didn't matter to me which one they were for my writing purposes. So, But I remember I wanted to meet a man named Dalton Trumbo. You know who that was? No, I do not. He was one of the Hollywood 10 screenwriters. And he was one who, under an assumed name, won an Oscar. But later, unlike some of the others, somehow it was okay for him to then write under his own name and to be a screenwriter and be accepted and so on. His whole career was really fascinating to me. And so I just looked him up. Asked him about the Vietnam War. And I remember... He kind of reminded me of Santa Claus. He had huh. a white beard and stuff. A very nice, gentle man. And, uh, but the, then the big thing was unplanned all along was I was to end up in Washington and see Manning before the Atlantic. Well, he worked for Time magazine. He'd done the cover story on Hemingway when Hemingway won the Nobel Prize. And he said, when well, he remembered knocking on the door of Hemingway's house in Nevada, and Hemingway, before he said anything, said, are you a drinker? And Bob said, yes. He said, so he let him in. He <laughs> said he had the feeling that if he said no, he wouldn't have even gotten in the house. But Manning, okay, so he'd been a big writer for Time magazine, and then he was the press secretary for Dean Rust, who was Secretary of State. Right. And so he arranged that I could have an interview with Rust and with Hubert Humphrey. And I remember going in to that experience. I felt, well, you know, Humphrey will be a great guy, and I probably won't like Rust because he's uh, one of the architects of Vietnam. And so it would turn out to be just the opposite. Because Humphrey was very, everything was like canned. You know, it was everything he said was like a press conference right. statement. It wasn't anything spontaneous. And Rusk was very interesting, very thoughtful. And the best part was, and this was a terrible mistake that I didn't put this in, but I knew that. Whatever I quoted from Russ was going to have to be approved. Right. So I thought this wouldn't have been approved, but who knows? Anyway, I should have tried. But 
after we had sort of our official conversation, he walked me to the door and he said, I, I hope you don't think I'm as Presbyterian as I sounded. And I said, well, no. And he said, you know, a lot of people don't know this, but during World War II, I dropped parachute supplies for Ho Chi Minh. Oh. And it was like he was trying to say, I'm really a good guy. That's so interesting. <laughs> so that would have been the best line yeah. in the whole piece. So d did you get the sense that he... He was sorry that he was involved got, in the I way got he the was. Sense he was certainly not an enthusiast. Right. That he was carrying out his duties, and that was my impression. Interesting. Um, and then, of course, the politician has to say yeah. the politician's things. And, and he said, you know, this is the administration's stance and right. rationale and so on. Interesting. You know, I have so many questions. I have so many questions. And I think the next time it would be, I would love to, like, look at that piece specifically and maybe hmm. have you read a little bit of it or, yeah. you know, talk about it specifically. Because, I mean, you've just then covered the entire country um, during a really tumultuous time. I mean, you just kind of dropped in on Ginsburg and Joan Didion and John Donne and you Dalton know, and, I, Trumbull. and Dalton Trumbull, and I'm thinking, wait a minute. So, you know, is this the time when Joni Mitchell might have been at Joan Didion's house? And, you know, so there's all that kind of People magazine kind of interest. But um, mostly I'm thinking that we're having this conversation in 2019 and the example you gave of the policeman in yeah in Detroit and then of you know going out to the coast it seems to me that you must have seen that kind of division in the country that has only maybe not intensified but we're looking at it again in much yeah. the same way yeah. i mean it's still the kind of red midwest and the blue coasts and not any kind of understanding and of one another, really, but you're kind of moving between them yeah. there. And I wonder, yeah. just, I don't know, I'm interested in hearing your thoughts or if there were, was anything you thought of then that is applicable to now. By or, the way, I didn't meet Joni Mitchell. I think this was uh, <laughs> pre then, but I did meet the guy who was making the bookcases for their new house in Malibu, who was Harrison Ford. Harrison Ford, that's so funny. Who later loaned his airplane so that Joan could fly out when Quintana was in the hospital oh, wow. in L.A., et cetera, et cetera. He um, was a carpenter then. Yeah. Well, he was, you know, as an actor, if you weren't in a big-time role, you had to have a... Other than yeah. he was a carpenter, very good at it. But one thing I wanted to say about Alan Nolan, it's, I think, you know, when you say about the country's division, but you always found, despite these divisions, you found, even in Indianapolis, Alan Nolan. Right. And his role in our history, American history and Indiana history is somehow connected to my first awakening. I was at Columbia, and there was a big story in the Times that the first meeting of the American Civil Liberties Union in Indianapolis, the Indiana Civil Liberties Union, was to be held at the Indiana War Memorial and then the Indiana War Memorial denied them being able to meet there. And then every hotel in Indianapolis denied them being able to meet. And this, the Civil Liberties Union was made up of outstanding professors from Indiana University, Purdue University, and a man like Alan Nolan, who was an outstanding lawyer in Indianapolis. And these people... They were 
label a pinko organization. Mm. Of course, Indianapolis also was the founding of the John Birch Society. Right. Edward R. Murrow came to Indianapolis and did a whole story on that on subject. That? The, really? Yes. A half hour. So you are there. Oh, my God. <laughs> and so I wrote a letter to the star. And I said, it's really a shame. I was a junior at Columbia. I said, really a shame to read about your hometown, about denying Civil Liberties Union to meet in the War Memorial. So it's become more famous for that than for the 500-mile race. Mm. So this letter was published in the Star. So that was my poor parents' initiation. Into, into having a journalist as a son. to come. And then in the star, there appeared a letter responding to my letter and saying, this is what happens when our nice young men oh go east to college. And it was signed only with initials, J-G-T. So I had no idea it was that. Then the next letter was from my Shortridge friend, Dick Stout, who was at DePaul. And he said, well, I agree with Dan, and I didn't go east to college. I'm in Greencastle, Indiana. And besides, who is his critic who was afraid to sign their name and only sign initials? So that was that. Then, okay, flash forward to about 25 years later. I'm sitting at Ted Steve's apartment in New York, where I always stayed when I went back to New York. We had roomed together in the village. And we were talking about, as we always talked about, Indianapolis. And I told him that story. And he said, well, wait a minute. He said, the letter attacking you was JGT? I said, yeah. He said, that was Charlotte's mother. Charlotte had been his girlfriend in oh, high school. Oh, no. And her mother had been one of the founding members of the John Birch Oh, my gosh. And Ted said she kept a scrapbook of Pinko or Kami organizations, et cetera. That's amazing. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah, really amazing. Well, yeah, and I guess when you're talking about, let me get back to the division thing, but you've also just talked about Dorothy Day, you know, being put into jail yeah. and being accused of being a pinko. So that's yeah. partly the times, I guess, to yeah. that division. But what was interesting to me when that set that thought off was the fact, here's the red state of Indianapolis, but here's Alan Nolan, right. who's certainly no pinko, but he's a civil libertarian and outstanding leading citizen who's respected by everybody and that's where he is and then it's Kurt Vonnegut who comes back and who gives a talk to the Indiana Civil Liberties Union in which he says I grew up in a city that was just as segregated as Biloxi Mississippi except for the drinking fountains and the buses Mm. so there is that. And and there's the fact that Debs is from Terre Haute. Yes. Yeah. yeah. There is that. A, is there an quote Debs? Right, and, right. Know, yeah. And, you know, of course, when doing these civil rights stories, I would always find in whatever city the civil liberties lawyer, the civil rights lawyer who was being attacked in their house was being threatened and people throwing things on them. I mean, just like here, I think of Bob Collins, who was the first sports writer to come out admiring the Christmas right. basketball team. And people drove around his house at night shouting bad things and wrote to the stars saying they should fire him and all that kind of stuff. But he was there, and he didn't back down, and he was a brave guy. So did you have, I mean, when you were going around in the 60s and doing this article, 
did you feel that same? I mean, I'm sure that my father at that particular time would have, you know, had the same reaction that the police maybe did in Detroit. He was pretty conservative during that era. Um, so, I don't know. I, I think so, Alan too. Nolan yeah, except for Alan Nolan. So, but he would have, I guess, what I'm saying is if you would have asked him or asked his friends, he would have said, yeah, this is a really frightening time. What's happening to our kids? They don't understand how fragile the world is because he'd just come out of World War II, and yeah. that was the time you were writing about, the kids of the World War II generation saying, no, we're not going to fight. There was a famous folk song that Philip called I Ain't Marching Anymore. Yeah, I remember that. I met him through Reed Babbitt's. Did you? Yeah. Oh. Oh, if I had ever thought that someday I would be sitting interviewing somebody who had met Philip, <laughs> you could have knocked me over with a feather. <laughs> it's interesting. Schwab's drugstore. That Schwab's drugstore. Of course, it was all three. Wait, is Schwab's drugstore where you saw Jim Morrison? No, I saw him at the liquor locker. At the liquor locker, okay. Whereas the Indiana University Lilly Library has my liquor Liquor receipts. Although I didn't know that. (laughs) That's so funny. I thought it was very noble. See, this is how you can trust the Lilly Library. Right. did not allow the graduate student to look and transcribe my liquor bill. Now, is that because you're still living? I mean, is there when something like the Lilly Library gets all these receipts and we're sitting here in the basement of Butler University Library taping this and even as we speak, there are probably students up on the third floor going through Etheridge Knight's papers that are kept in this library and they're very interested in receipts. I mean, they yeah. find, you know, all sorts of receipts. And is that because he's deceased that they can look at the receipts and catalog them and talk about them? Or? I don't know. And besides, this was a particular person who was in a position of authority. Maybe another position, person there would not or would have said, sure. You oh, yeah, I that's don't know. true. There's no rule. I think when I make my final deal with them, I want to straighten that out. Right, you probably should. It's like, you know, Willa Cather's letters, it was like 100 years or something after her death, I think, that they were finally made available and everybody was thinking, this is so exciting, there's going to be something amazing in the letters. but And the letters, of course, were wonderful because they were written, some of them by Willa Cather and by amazing people who wrote to her, but she had pretty much called anything out of it that she didn't want people to know. I wondered if I could, when you said that, I was just thinking, could I now go back and look and decide there are things I want taken out? Oh, probably not at this point. But you probably could say, you know, I want them to be locked for another 10 years or something. Interesting. Well, you know, I was, I don't want to keep this. This is the only copy I have. Right. I wanted to give it to the library. So. Oh, I have a PDF of that. Actually, they found here in the library. So. No, because I was wondering if I should read something. Yeah, no, I think that would be great. Do you want to wait and do that next time? Thanks again to Mr. Wakefield, and thank you to our listeners for listening. Naptown is taped at Butler University's Irwin Library with the help of Megan Rutledge-Grady. Funding for Naptown was provided by the Ayers Fund, National Endowment for the Humanities, and Indiana Humanities. This is a Dominique Weldon, Rory Deshmer production. Again, this is your host, Susan Neville. See you next time in Naptown. <laughs>